E-S-N-Y. tonight jeff campbell it's thursday june 10th a little past 8 p.m hoops is always going to be the topic but tonight specifically we're talking about uh this current group of college basketball players prospects the draft is fast approaching and uh, as every fan out there is trying to figure out who their team should draft and why um i'm very pleased to have on someone who has worked within the philadelphia 76ers organization as a scout uh, currently hosts the Stepian Draft Podcast, Sean Darenthal. Sean, what's going on? Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeffrey. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, and I think the first place I want to start is uh, just a little bit more of, of a general draft question. Uh, you've done several of these breakdowns for the Stepian Draft Podcast. Uh, the consensus really has been um, starting really like a year ago, that this is going to be a very deep draft, especially within the lottery, those top, those first top 10 picks, maybe not necessarily all of them are franchise changing players, but at the very least rotational, maybe starters on day one. After you've kind of looked at your analysis, the guys that you've really looked at, um, did you feel that way in the beginning? And do you feel that way now? Well, I'll say like, I usually, when people hear my analysis of stuff, they'll usually say, hey man, is this just like a terrible draft or are you just lower? You know, are you trying to be more realistic than other people or something like that? So I will say that I do think that expectations, broadly speaking, in the mainstream, particularly kind of public expectations are usually quite inflated. Okay. Like for example, the number one overall pick only has about like a 60% chance to be an all-star, right? Which usually we're talking about these guys as like franchise changing guys. But if you go through the list in your head of guys that made one all-star team, you would go back and look at those guys. And you would think those guys aren't that great, right? So I mean, the bar is much, much higher than most people think. If you're drafting in the top 10 and you know, you're expecting to get a starter, I, now I'm talking about like the context of a good, you know, NBA championship contending kind of team. You're expecting to get a starter on that kind of team. Like usually that doesn't happen. Okay. So, all right. So with those kind of expectations set, I would say that this draft, I mean, as far as I can tell so far, it seems pretty average. Now there is one difference that does kind of stick out is that positionally um, perimeter players, obviously, you know, they're gaining in value, or at least the NBA is starting to value them maybe as they should have been valuing them for years. Right. And, you know, the value of bigs is going down obviously. And just being able to spend draft picks on like, you know, like lottery tickets on perimeter players that could, that have some potential to be two-way players. These are the guys that drive championship rosters. So that come off benches on championship rosters. So in this draft, there are a lot of those guys. So that helps because, you know, if it's an average draft, but instead of having, I don't know, half of the top first round be wings or perimeter players, um, instead in this draft, it's more like two thirds to three fourths or whatever. I don't know ex exactly what the fraction is, but if it's bigger then you know, more teams are going to get players that are going to help in winning contexts, hopefully. Right. So in that sense, maybe it's a stronger draft than normal but as far as like the quality of guys i don't know that it's it seems about average to me honestly yeah i think that's really interesting I, that's a question i wanted to start with first because kind of the sense i got in listening to a, a lot of um your podcasts was that you know and it wasn't necessarily that you were saying like i'm so much lower than consensus on this guy or evan Mobley, yeah. something like that but it was just it was kind of more of that um, 
you're, you're really looking at it from like a law of averages. Like, yes, if this guy, there's a certain range of outcomes and if everything breaks right for this one player, then yeah, they can hit the ceiling and it would be great. But the odds of that happening aren't great. So yeah. it's almost funny because then I wonder if, um, and this is just a question I'm thinking of now as you're, as you're talking, yeah. like, do you, do you maybe value, and I'm not saying every, every position is different and, and every, um, uh, every chance that you have to pick someone, you're, you're weighing a lot of different things, but do you value someone who maybe has a higher floor if, if that's the case? This is a, this is a great question because so there are like, not to get too much in the weeds about this, but, um, um, okay. So if there is some, okay, so there are kind of two factors, right? There are two factors when you're weighing, like whether I should draft this guy above this next guy or whatever, if you're trying to give them like a grade or a score or something like that, um, obviously these things are more subjective than that, right? That's impossible. But if you're trying to conceptualize that um, in a prospect, there is like some probability curve, right? If you imagine like a bell curve, it's probably not a bell curve, right? It's probably skewed, um, you know, heavily uh, to the left. But if, if you think about this curve of like the potential outcomes that this player could have as a distribution, the value obviously of the, of the higher outcomes is much more, than these lower outcomes, right? However, that's not like it's not that's not linear. The the value of those high high outcomes is is exponentially higher than even just like the average outcome or anything past that. Usually things past the average outcome are like have a value of like zero because you're not going to play in a playoff rotation anyway, right? So if you're never going to play, it's about the same as if you're not making the league in 2 years. Anyway, so as you're trying to weigh like what is the probability of an outcome? And then how valuable is that outcome? Then you, then you kind of need to, <laughs> this is not easy to do, but you kind of need to think like, okay, what, what is the, what's like the expected outcome? Or you can kind of think about that as like a utility function or something like that. Um, and trying to maximize the utility. So you're trying to weigh all of those different factors. So yeah, the floor is super important. The median outcome is super important. And these high outcomes usually end up being the most important thing because like I said before, if you're, if you're really thinking about the expectations realistically, most people's median outcomes don't matter because they end up being like, you know, the end of a bench in the, in the, in the NBA, right? Like they almost never get to play or they don't last beyond four years and they never re really make an impact in the playoffs. So like you imagine 60 guys are drafted every year most of those guys aren't going to like really make the league past the first couple of years. So the actual, like the high end outcomes for all of these players, their ceiling or whatever, most of those are like the, the outcomes where they actually even just stay in the league anyway. Right. So like, usually you're looking at, at those outcomes. Now, of course, the players at the top of the draft, even their low outcomes are contributing potentially to winning teams. Right. So that's not the case for every player, but you, ch I think, you need to find some kind of method of um, weighing all of the different outcomes appropriately, not just the floor or the ceiling, but you got to kind of combine all of those. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably a really good place to transition into the first player that I wanted to ask you about and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would, I would think based on the podcast that you recorded on him, that you might feel that he has a pretty good floor, pretty high floor. And that would be Jalen Suggs. And yeah. uh, your, your podcast for him was recorded back in mid-March. I think it's fair to say that he had a, he, he had a pretty good uh, to, you mm. know, average tournament, especially that game yeah. he got against UCLA. What, if anything, has changed about the way you view his game post-tournament? Um, nothing, really. Uh, so at the moment, I think he's... I think I would draft him number two. I would pretty much advise like every team to draft him number two, kind of regardless of the context that they have. There's no reason why you can't just have more perimeter players, right? Like rosters or fit or your offense or whatever. I don't think any of that really matters um, when you're drafting somebody. But I, so my thought on him hasn't changed as much. My thought on him relative to Evan Mobley, maybe they're a little bit closer than I thought. So maybe it's just, my idea of Evan Mobley being a 
a difference maybe maybe that has increased so his relative ranking and in my kind of personal board or whatever maybe he's gotten a little bit closer but i still think i would draft him number two but but really nothing has changed like i think that he's like like you said his floor is even his floor is pretty attractive it's hard to imagine that unless his shot completely falls apart that he can't contribute to high level winning basketball so yeah I think another thing that when I was listening to that podcast that stuck out was kind of the hesitance in terms of projecting his shooting, because if you looked at that sample size, you know, if you include high school, he only really shot well during that freshman year, surrounded by really good teammates at at Gonzaga. Um, Which one of his swing skills, whether it's the shooting or maybe making more advanced reads in the pick and roll, do you think are likely to develop if you had to kind of bet and put a percentage on it at the next level and if and if that does um pan out how does that affect your your view of his potential um so in some ways like shooting is this is kind of a cop-out answer but in some ways shooting is like the quote-unquote swing skill or x factor for almost everybody right like even good shooters if they can reach kind of different levels of shooting their value goes way, way up, right? Like just shooting as a skill by itself is so unbelievably valuable. Um, so, you know, that's certainly one of them. His, his playmaking though is definitely something that I thought uh, you kind of mentioned it, kind of more advanced reads in the pick and roll. There are things in there that I would say are quote unquote advanced, like timing on his pocket passes and stuff is already really good. His willingness, um, to let that kind of either hit that early if the window was open or let that pick and roll develop a little bit more, you know, and, and try to freeze that, that third defender that comes over to, to tag the roll man. That stuff was like pretty developed already. Although his overall vision to see the shooter in the back corner, um, guys on the weak side, that kind of stuff I thought was, there's an argument that in their system, it wasn't very prevalent. Um, but I, I think maybe he just wasn't as developed in that way. He's a little bit shorter. So it's harder for those guys to see those passes. Like the best passers in the NBA, even the short guys can hit that, but it's just so much easier for, for these taller guys to just turn and rifle a pass like over their head. Right. Instead of having to do the Trey young, where you're almost blindly lobbing it to the guy in the corner and then his shooting window is just much shorter. So anyway, that that's a long way of saying that pass is going to just be harder for Suggs, but if that kind of playmaking develops, right? Like if the shot gets better and, and it's off the dribble, it's like he can load up with that off the dribble in the pick and roll, which I think he was pretty comfortable of reading when his defender went under. Right. So if you always have to go over um, and he can also kind of improve his vision and, and, and the timing of those long skip passes out of the pick and roll, I mean, those two things combined, I mean, we've seen in this playoffs already, those guys are driving really efficient offense in the playoffs and being able to add one of those guys next to somebody else. I mean, that's the difference between like, you know, maybe round one around two or round two around three or something like that. Right. I think it, it's, it's interesting too. Like for me, he strikes me as somebody who I feel like could have a, a good amount of immediate success at the NBA level too, because I, I just feel like even if some of those things don't necessarily pan out, like, like the fact that he shot well with good players at Gonzaga, you know, most likely whatever team he gets drafted to will have really good talent comparative to that team as well. Um, so even if it's catch and shoot situations, you know, if he's not the primary ball handler, I think he's still going to be able to have, whether it's attacking closeouts or just, you know, open shots, um, a pretty good, pretty good effect. And, and I, 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 you know, in the games that I've watched him, I, I like his energy. I think that's also what stands out to me as well. Like that, yeah. that's something that, you know, me personally, I, I value a lot. Um, but that can vary across, you know, different personality types. But, you know, I think that's, um, I, I, I definitely, I'm interested to see how he does for sure. Um, yeah. Another guy that, that I wanted to talk about, and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably get into a big conversation about him is Evan Mobley. And I, I do have to say, after hearing your podcast, it made me look at him differently, for sure. Yeah. You know, I hadn't done really like an extensive um, deep dive on him or anything, but I, I saw a couple of games. And of course, I'm reading what, you know, um, 
a lot of media outlets are putting out there. But the one thing that really worries me um, is, is kind of the motor stuff that you bring up. And, you know, I remember there were um, big criticisms of that. Um, I guess last year, if we're looking at like Wiseman and like Anthony Edwards, I felt like Wiseman, it, it was one year and he only had three games in college, but like he looked pretty good in that sense. But just in your experience, when you're scouting guys and you see, you know, defensive awareness is an issue, motor can be an issue. In your experience, do you feel like there are guys that really turn that around when they get to the league? Or is that a, a habit that is really hard to break? Yeah, that's, gosh, this is hard. If, if, if you have like a really good answer to that question, which is like difficult, right? So like, let's say if you were a scientist, right? You're a data scientist or whatever, and you're designing an experiment to answer this question and say like, um, is a defensive awareness or um, good defensive processing or good decision-making as a young player, is that predictive of good decision-making later at your peak in the NBA or, you know, is it, is the variance higher, right? Like basically the question is how developable is that skill, right? Yeah. Um, if you could design that experiment, you would say like, okay, I would want some way to definitively say what, give them a defensive awareness score or something, right? Some definitive way of saying where they're at as a thing and do that over like consistently over all of maybe let's just say the young bigs in the league or something like that, or maybe even in college, if, you know, if, if we're lucky to do that and then track it every year and, and see where that is the peak, unfortunately that kind of stuff doesn't exist, right? Like you have to, it's, it's difficult to do on a personal level. It's difficult to do looking at just statistics. Um, I will say that I think it makes sense. And like my personal philosophy um, based on, I think what's pretty good, like it's the best evidence that I have is that it's one of the harder things to develop. Now, is it possible to develop it? Sure. Uh, DeAndre Ayton blasted for this all through his development, That's even right. at the younger levels where he was dominating based on other attributes. All of a sudden now in the playoffs, he's being lauded for this yeah. flip, right? Um, I think that he is one of the exceptions. I, th I think it's, I think it's rare that there's a case like that, right? So he might, <laughs> he, he might fool some people into taking a bet where maybe they shouldn't. Right. But like as, as a scout or, or as an NBA decision maker, when you're doing this, you have to like play the odds. Right. So you could say, look, is it possible that somebody like Deandre Aiden can flip this switch and then all of a sudden be way more effective, uh, you know, making these choices. Yes, it's possible, but if I bet against it, I'll be right more often yeah. than not, right? Um, and of course, it's not binary like that. You know, there's, you know, it's a continuous variable, obviously, right? You're going to, everyone's going to improve somewhat in this. Anyway, so getting back to Mobley, um, his decision-making on that end isn't necessarily bad, but I also don't, I disagree with a lot of other people that I respect a lot who have an opinion as far as I can tell, that his processing is very good. And I just don't think there's a, there's a lot of evidence for that. In fact, because so many people that I respect said that, I went back and I did, I did a little study, a few games. And so there's like this distinction between, hey, I'm seven foot whatever, and I'm mobile and I have, you know, seven foot whatever wingspan. I'm standing in the middle of the paint. How many shots am I just deterring? People come in and they see me here and they say, no, thanks. Right. And they dribble, you know, un underneath the basket or they just kick it out or whatever. Right. So how many shots are you just um, preventing? And then how often are you impacting a shot because of a smart rotation that you made an early rotation that you made, or just because of your length, you know, you can contest shots that maybe other people can't, or you're just contesting a normal layup and you altered in some way. Right. So I kind of did like a little count on this. And I, I remember doing this for other guys in the past. And in my head, I can imagine, you know, Hashim to be, just standing there preventing a ton. He was a defensive force at UConn. But, I mean, this is cherry picking a little bit, but I, I think he is representative of a certain class of college big that prevents a lot because of their size, because of whatever physical attributes they have. Um, and so I, I did just like a little 
mini, you know, count of whatever, how many times he did it. The percentage of times he was making a quote unquote good defensive impact. Was it merely just because of his size or was he making a smart rotation? Was there something more to it than just the size? And I, I was disappointed by this kind of, I would say, and this is anecdotal, right? This is small sample size. I wasn't writing anything down. It was me just looking for it. Perhaps it was confirmation bias because, you know, already I was a little bit low on this, but I would say that I really don't see the really smart, timely rotation film stuff right. where I, I just don't think all of it is as planned and as calculated as some other people would like to believe with him um, in the space of the NBA. Obviously that, that becomes harder, right? His impact is going to be way less, particularly if he's not um, stout enough to defensive rebound well and to protect the rim and you have to play him at the four then his defensive value tanks, I think. So yeah, anyway, that's that's probably too long of a spiel on that, but that is like the crux basically of his values. I think it's a super important discussion to have. I, I, two things uh, came up to me while you were talking about that. Yeah. It's, especially when you're um, discussing Mobley, like I, I know in the podcast too, it, it felt like he was more block hunting as opposed to deterring shots um, because of a rotation or something like that. When you're discussing that, I really feel like as a Knicks fan, that was um, Mitchell Robinson between years mm. one and year two. You know, yeah. year one, he was an athletic phenom. No one knew who he was. He was blocking everything under the sun, you yeah. know, blocking three pointers, you know, you know, closing out on the perimeter. But then in year two, the blocks went down. But you, what you saw was people stopped driving because, you know, he, he literally changes offenses when he's out. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I guess if you're a huge fan of Mobley, what you're hoping is that it, it turns into more of that. Yeah. Than Another thing that, that you brought up and a quick aside, I'm hoping, and, um, I'm, 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 I'm not a huge, well, no, I am a big fan of Obi Toppin, uh, yeah. partially because I'm a Knicks fan, but Deandre Ayton and, and, um, a little less so, but John Collins, um, improvement on defense since, since they've been in the league. Is part of the reason I'm, I'm still holding out hope <laughs> because, you know, the Knicks drafted him eight and I'm sitting there and I'm like, listen, guys, just relax. It's going to be fine. Then you start seeing, you know, the really slow rotation with the hips, you know, really struggling defensively, especially getting on the perimeter. You know, they don't run a lot of pick and roll for him. So they're, they're asking him to sit on the you know perimeter and kind of shoot. So like offensively, he's limited. I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, but and he's older too, so that that's a that's a big piece of it as well. But yeah. um, that that turnaround that Aiton has uh, is is a reason I'm I'm still holding out hope for talent. So hopefully it happens. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and just to be clear, like I hope all these guys are good, right? Like yeah, the NBA is no, better yeah. with better people. I hope all that. I hope they're all great. Honestly, I hope I'm wrong. Um, let me see if I had a, another one for Mobley. I think we kind of talked about it before, but it was basically just. Um, when I when I heard the podcast, I just came away with the feeling that it's it's again in no way were you saying that he's not going to be an impact player, but it's just there's a lot that needs to break um, right for him to really hit his ceiling. And I, and I, I just kind of yeah. with you know would you say that's correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, somebody his size and mobility. Okay, so here's the deal, right? If we're talking about him being a five in the NBA on like an average roster or even like a below average roster, like there's a chance that he makes an all-star team not being maybe that great of a player on like a middling team and he's super impactful in the regular season game to game, right? I, I mean, it's really hard to imagine that his floor is so bad that where he won't be a starter on some team, right? Like he will, he will be that. But we're, the things that we care about are like winning championships and if you're going to play the five and you're going to anchor a defense, I'm just thinking about these playoffs, the fives that are really making a difference, there is a very high bar for interior rim defense and defensive rebounding. And when you don't have that, when you see all of these like big time fives go off the floor, they have this huge plus minus because you know, backup bigs in the playoffs get carved. When they see a backup big, they're just diving to the rim. They're right. desperate to get shot attempts on these guys, right? Like Porzingis's value is tanked mostly because of his defense. Yeah. I mean, his offense is, you know, disappointing, but it's really the defensive stuff. Um, anyway, so 
it's about how is he going to perform at the highest levels. And for that to happen, you know, you'd like to see some, the highest possible defensive outcomes come true. And then of course, if you add some of the good offensive stuff, that's just like, that's bonus stuff. And and that obviously makes him super, super valuable. But, but yeah, I would say, like you said, we're just talking about his ceiling here. We're not talking about the next Tim Duncan or whatever, right? We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about some rare chance of him being, you know, not even Anthony Davis. I mean, let's not get hyperbolic here being somewhat less than that, but still being a third, maybe best player or something like that on a championship team. Who's that's a great player, but the odds of all of this coming together, I think are just lower than people think. That makes sense. Um, the next guy I wanted to touch on uh, before I kind of get into James Booknight, he's, he's the guy that I really want to talk to you about. But Keon Johnson, I, I really just have one kind of comparison for him here. Yeah. I just want you, there's two guys, and I want to ask you if he mirrors uh, any one of their games. And if, the, if both are terrible comparisons, just let me know and, and we'll <laughs> totally move on. That's fine. But I know that shooting is, is Keon's biggest concern. He's, yeah. he's really a plus athlete. And when I was li- listening to your podcast, um, again, the, the games are not um, completely similar, but there was two guys that I thought of that jumped out at me and, and um, Isaac Okoro and Jarrett Culver. And, and I wanted to ask if either of those two guys, you think he's, he's a little bit closer to when he was in, when, when he was in college, well, when, when they were in college. Yeah. I, I don't know as much about Okoro. I can't speak to him in as much detail. So I'll just focus on Culver a little bit, um, who I know very well. Um, yeah, there's definitely some similarities, right? I, I don't know. Okay, so comparisons, obviously, like you said, they're not perfect, right? But that's not the point. The point is to maybe extract something in the ways that we're trying to compare them. Obviously, no player is exactly like another player. Um, but in the way that Culver um, relied on skill. Uh, sorry, what? Slashing kind of. Oh, yeah, sure. So so relied on skill to kind of get to the spots that he wanted to get to and bumps um, and use his size and kind of savvy to drive. In that way, he's, he's actually kind of dissimilar from, from Keon Johnson in that Keon Johnson is lightning quick. Like he's he's very explosive. He's not very strong. So he's not like the best athlete in the draft per se, but in some ways he's, he's very, very athletic. Mm. So he's relying a lot on that stuff, but the ways in which they are similar, which is kind of interesting is that I think they both have very good vision. They both have a good sense of where their teammates are and can react quickly on passes when they're doubled because Tennessee's, context was so crowded like they had zero spacing and their offense was in not only just the spacing but they had maybe not the best cutters and the best um offensive alignment at times the passing opportunities weren't the the windows were just very small and keon johnson could diagnose and and get those um passes to guys in those windows very quickly it was so like, like uh, the UNC situation last year, I felt like, you know, Cole Anthony, um, yeah. uh, I think he fell a lot because there were, there were, the spacing at UNC was terrible. And, and I think it kind of hurt his game because of that too. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, yeah, that's definitely a reasonable comparison. Those contacts for sure. So anyway, so I think Culver was, was good in that respect. His quick diagnosis and, and quick passing, that kind of stuff is similar. Now, Culver eventually showed that there might be something there with his shooting, right? Whereas Keon Johnson's shooting, I mean, you know, he leaves a lot to be desired. Obviously he's young, he's a freshman. So shooting improves and, you know, some team maybe, uh, you know, lives with that improvement arc and allows him to kind of play regardless of how bad he might be at shooting at the early part of his career. Um, but if he lasts, you know, and his shot is given time, most I'm mean, like sh- shooting is statistically the most improvable thing. Not, we can't track everything really well with statistics, but of the things that we can track, well, shooting is one of the more improvable things. So, um, yeah, that's where I think, I think Culver's shooting projection eventually was a little bit better than Keon Johnson's, but not much better. 
I was so high on Culver coming out of the draft too. I really liked him out of Texas Tech. And I, you know, I'm sure Minnesota didn't do him too many favors over there, but I hope he he gets to play with some team. But I do think that there's a useful skill set there. Yeah, there's definitely some latent potential there. I mean, yeah, who knows, man? I there may be some something else to that story that is not really public, but I yeah, it's yeah, it's it's tough to see him because he was also one of my favorites. Uh, the, the last guy I wanted to touch on uh, was James Booknight. And it's funny, um, I'm having you on this podcast now. And I think like a day or two ago, there was a really big article from uh, Mark Schindler, who I think writes for Indy Cornrows. He did kind of like a, a draft analysis on Booknight and it kind of like really shot up on NBA Twitter. Um, so it, it, I really liked his podcast. Um, you prefaced a lot of your analysis, which I thought was really interesting. You kept kind of like saying like you felt like you were making excuses for him, which I, which I, I thought was really interesting. Um, and it seemed to me that you were a lot higher on his kind of like, I don't want to say intangible, but like off ball craftiness, whether it's screaming timing before he gets into a set. And because of that, and I liked how you started the podcast you kind of said that the the fact of the, his lack of creation, because he's not a great passer, might not hurt him that much if, if he's not asked to do that. And then, interestingly enough, the article that I just read yeah. um, literally talked about him as an off-ball scorer and likened his ability to work off pin downs like Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, Rip Hamilton, like someone who really understands how to navigate space between your body and kind of push off and hold and stuff like yeah. that. Um, I, again, the, the podcast was, was recorded in April. Do you feel any different about him now? Um, not really. Um, uh, I, I definitely, I definitely think that of all of the guys that I'm, that I've done so far, I'm a little bit higher on him than consensus, just like for, for some of the things that you said, but also for the upside where, um, his shot really develops and, you're not relying on him to be the best decision maker, but you know, in this, in this scenario, which his shot develops quicker than the average shooting projection, the, uh, you know, the average like improvement curve for shooting. And then his vision develops a tiny bit. I think that like a lot of people are pegging him as like a one-way scorer, but he was actually, I think a really good decision maker off ball on defense. Some of his rotations were as crisp um, as anyone that I scouted and the timing was perfect. Like we use the expression being on a string, right? So like your teammate, the big maybe will rotate out to a driver. And if you're on the weak side, you're supposed to cover his man. So there's not like an easy drop off to the dunker spot. Well, book night had a few of the rotations to that big man where he was in rotation as soon as, or a tiny bit before his big decided to rotate, right? So he's already anticipating kind of the next rotation. That kind of stuff is honestly pretty rare. Yeah. And uh, there were, there are times where he gets blown by or he does something dumb off ball, clearly exhausted, played tons of minutes, had an unbelievable usage and offensive load there. So again, like injury too. Yeah, that's right. So again, these might just sound like excuses, but he had some of the best and even fairly consistent off-ball defensive decision-making stuff. Anyway, so why does that matter for offense? It's potentially some indicator of, you know, latent decision-making that you don't necessarily see on-ball on offense. So, you know, when the shooting hits, all of this, the natural craft that I think he plays with on offense, like you were saying, navigating screens on offense, that kind of thing. Um, The problem is for that to be really useful, you have to be able to shoot well in a tight window and NBA offenses are going to have to trust you to run those sets, right? Those sets aren't going to matter and you're not going to have any gravity or any pull on um, a second defender. If you can't immediately pull the trigger quickly on that. And that is a very difficult thing to do, right? So book night's not there. Um, I guess what's the point that I'm making? It requires improvement, but if some of, the other things hit, then he becomes very valuable. I think as a two-way player, um, despite how people are characterizing him as kind of like a 
bucket getter Lou Williams type. I think he's he's not that necessarily. He's more off ball shooter who can, when he has the ball and has to pass up the jump shot, has extra creation playmaking ability and is also valuable on the defensive end. So his up, I fully expect him, like his expected outcome, I think to be not at all where I have him ranked. A bunch of players I expect to actually be better than him in the NBA. But if his upside hits, which is very, very valuable, um, I guess his upside is what is what's justifying my high ranking of him. That's a good way to say it. I think that I, I and I might know what direction you're going to lean in this, but um, my next question is, who would you rather draft? And, and maybe a better way to frame the question is, who do you think will have a more immediate impact in the NBA and who do you think will have the better career between Book Knight, Moody, or Jalen Green? Okay, so um, I think the person who will have the, the best immediate impact, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll say this. When, when I made my, you can still see the remnants, remnants of it if you're willing to wait long enough for it to load on, on, on the stepion.com. There's like a, a statistical model that I made that kind of develops or that um, the output is like a, uh, a distribution of, of outcomes. And uh, okay, how can I say this? When I was developing that model, you look at like what is wh- hmm, how can I say this? The model was based around peak NBA success, okay? And because you don't have data of peak NBA success for a lot of young guys, you have to kind of predict that peak. And the best predictor of peak um, production in the NBA is an average between the third and fourth year. When I looked at the correlation between the rookie season, and the peak of a player, there's very little correlation. So like how you perform as a rookie uh, doesn't mean a ton. Right. Of course, the best players are good, right? Like the Hall of Famers are great, but like take those guys out um, and how you perform your rookie season doesn't matter that much. So the best way to say like how good is someone going to play is basically like how good are you, right? Like how, how good are you already? Or like how... Um, where are you drafted basically is like the best indicator of how good you're going to be your rookie season. So Jalen Green is probably going to be drafted above those two guys. And I think he should be. And I think he'll probably have the best immediate impact. Um, And I also think that he'll have uh, the best peak. But that's not to say that some of his like median outcomes are not lower than Moody or who's the third guy was Book Knight, right? We're throwing in this. Moody Moody and Book Knight. Yeah. I think some of their high outcomes are considerably higher than like median outcomes for Jalen Green, right? So it's not like, oh, I think it's guaranteed he's going to blow these guys out of the water necessarily in head-to-head comparison. But um, obviously, they're all kind of different guys excel in different ways. But I think Jalen Green will, will probably have the more productive rookie season. And I would bet, not with a ton of confidence, but I would bet that he'll have the better overall career. I think... Um that as you were talking about that model that you created, I feel like I have to ask you, especially when we're talking about, you know, how you perform in your rookie year doesn't necessarily determine um, what your peak is or, or, you know, how you'll do later on based on Anthony Edwards rookie year. <laughs> how do you, how do you think he'll do in, in the future? Cause everyone, everyone's very high on him right now. And, and listen, I wasn't, uh, not that I'm some super draft guru, but, um, you know, I wasn't super high on him prior to the draft. And I saw this season and I was like, I'm going to eat all the crow that I can because this guy <laughs> is just killing it. Um, yeah. But what did you do? What did you, how did you see it? Yeah, of course, like it all comes down to, um, like a lot of it's going to come down to offensive efficiency, right? And once that ticks up, how is the other ancillary skills, the, the, the playmaking, the, the quick defensive diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, any defensive stuff that he's going to improve on, it will just be gravy. But basically the question is how efficient is he going to be shooting the ball off the dribble? Right? Like this is his super skill, right? His combination of his athleticism and um, his on ball skill and ability to create separation 
how well is he going to be able to capitalize on that? I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I don't know. Obviously, he got more than his share of opportunity, right? True. So, True. so the counting stats are not telling the story at all. Um, gosh, I, I don't know. I wish I could give you some kind of percentage. I would say that these kinds of things are difficult to improve. I said that shooting does improve, right? So just his like spot up shooting should improve over his career. The more difficult things, shooting off the dribble, this offensive decision-making stuff, I think is more difficult. So gosh, if I had to put a number on it, I don't know. And, and what are we talking about? Like, like how good is he going to improve? This is such like a mealy answer that I'm giving you. I know I'm no, putting fun. every caveat on it as possible, but I think, is he well, ever going to be like a top 10 NBA player that's driving maybe the first or second best or third best offensive player on a championship team? I don't necessarily see that outcome. I think that's probably less than 50%, less than maybe 40 or 30%, but it's possible, right? Maybe it happens one out of three times or something, right? If you simulate his career, you know, a thousand times, maybe it happens 30%, which is awesome, right? Like that's a great chance. Yeah. And if I were a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, I would be super excited about that. Well, maybe I'll just, this is the last thing I'll say on him. If you had to bet, would you say that he'll make more or less than three all-star games in in his career? Oh gosh, man. (laughs) So much of that. Aren't the greatest barometer, but yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I feel, I feel you. It's, it's a reasonable one. So much of that will depend on if, you know, his team is good, right. if his team is good and he's the second best player on that team behind towns, or maybe he's the best player on like a, even like a winning some, team. Some Wolves fans are saying that some Wolves fans are already ready to kind of, um, you know, to give, give him that mantle that he's going to be the best player on the team. Yeah. It, he definitely could be. Um, I wait. What what's the over under? You're saying three all stars? Three, yeah. Oh, shoot, man. I'll just take the under on that for almost anybody, right? If you're trying to factor in injuries, or yeah. you know, we're always optimistic about this stuff. If you put the over under at like one and a half, I'd be more tempted to take the over. Uh, I don't know. Three, I think I'll I'll go under, but not with a ton of confidence. It's a tough one, but I, I'm I'm you know that's another one that I'm I'm fascinated about. Yeah, for so sure. The last one before we get you out of here, and it's a topic that I could talk about for hours, but um, I'm sure it'll it'll be you know it'll be a good conversation. Um, as a Knicks fan, uh, of course, all of my uh, you know all, all of my chips are invested in uh, R.J. Barrett. Yeah, and. Um, I'm just interested to know what you thought of him coming out of college. Now that he's improved his shooting, what, how do you view him? And I, I guess I'm, um, you know, when we talk about the range of outcomes that we we talked about earlier in this podcast, I, I think I'd be I'd be hard pressed to think that a lot of people thought that his shooting would improve the way that it did from yeah. one to year two. Um, and who knows if that is an aberration or if it's yeah. going to be consistent. But those are my two questions for you about him. What did you think about him coming out of college and and how do you view him now? Yeah, so I think I had him, if I remember, I had him like three or four. Um, I it was always about it was always about the upside with him. Right. Like I think the the way I saw it was like the median outcomes, the average outcomes for him were always going to be disappointed, always going to be kind of disappointments based on the expectations that he came in with and where he was going to be drafted. However, he has certain skills, certain abilities that are very rare. So, you know, this one of this one of his many swing skills, like so many others, the shooting, if that comes along, then his offensive value increases dramatically. For instance, his ability to drive um, and get a few long strides around somebody, not necessarily being the best athlete in the world, but knowing how to use his body and getting a few strides, particularly going left, obviously he's super dominant going left, but, um, or at least he does that a lot, right? That's his dominant yeah. side. I shouldn't say that he is dominant doing that necessarily. Um, but his ability to do that is very rare. Like yeah. watching all of these guys at the college level, all of these guys coming in, like most people don't have a skill as strong as, as a strength, as strong as Barrett did 
with that particular skill driving in certain ways and avoiding defenders in tight spaces on the interior. That's kind of like, that was kind of like his superpower, right? So if you have that block, which not many people have, then you can add hopefully improved finishing touch, which is a difficult thing to do. And there's a lot of randomness in like rim finishing statistics. So it's not always easy to tell necessarily. Um, but then, you know, the corner three, which he shot well this year, that was kind of his bread and butter, right? So you're adding that already. It allows you to build other players around him. Um, other guys that maybe can't shoot as well, right? Like his buddy Zion, maybe. You know, just a lot of other guys become a lot more attractive. It makes your roster building a lot easier. Um, so, yeah, man, he hit on that swing skill. Hopefully it's not an aberration. Um, if some defensive um, awareness can improve a little bit maybe next season, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of like low hanging fruit with him. I think one of the weaknesses coming out was always his um, vision ability to recognize quickly, uh, read the defensive quickly where they were shifting and capitalize on open windows. And I think that's something that he's still kind of struggling with. And of course, I mean, I, it's my opinion that those things are difficult to improve at. So I don't know where, where do we like see his ceiling now that he's made a jump in the shooting? If the shooting persists, uh, you don't imagine amazing offensive gains, I think from this point forward, other than continuing to finish and get to the line at a great rate. And of course, championship rosters are littered with guys that don't have amazing vision, but who are playing off of compromised defenses from the LeBrons, from the Stephs, from the Anthony Davises, you know, from the best players in the league, the Kevin Durant's or whatever. So him alongside of whoever else will lead the Knicks to their next championship or whatever, you know, if, if that happens, um, yeah, he's, you know, he's projects reasonably as a starter on a championship level team where he's, you know, the fourth or fifth best player or whatever. Um, and that's a wonderful outcome honestly, for him. And then any other improvement is kind of just gravy and makes him even more valuable. Yeah. And I, I, it's funny too, like when you're talking about um, that skill in terms of those long strides that he, he can, you know, navigating those tight spaces around another player, like the only, I mean, there's a ton of players in the league that use the Euro step uh, or some variation of it. Kyle Henderson is a guy that I, I feel like has Barrett's, uh, athletic profile, you know, I think Barrett is definitely more of an athlete than Kyle Anderson. Um, yeah. but, but is, is enough of a, not a, not necessarily a non-athlete, but someone who, you don't, you, when you see it happen, you don't really know how it happens. I think that's yeah. a way to describe it because when I see Barrett do what he does, I I'm literally just kind of sitting there like, wow, it's almost, it's almost as surprising as like someone putting down like a ferocious dunk. But yeah. for a very different reason. Um, and I think the, the, the range of outcomes in terms like like if Barrett's athleticism was top tier or better, then I think maybe we could start forecasting, OK, maybe better than the fourth or fifth best player on a championship team, which is still really good for him. Yeah. Um, the thing about the thing about him that I and I've said this on like a bunch of pods previously. So I know I sound like a bit of a broken record, but his defense was so bad in college that I was really worried despite how young he was. Yeah. Um, but even in his first year with, with, you know, David Fizdale, who was, who really didn't do him a, a lot of favors. Um, I was impressed with just not only his effort, but keeping his hands in the passing lanes. Okay. If he got beat off the pick and roll, he knew kind of how to recover and, and maybe kind of like sneak, you know, tip somebody's pass out of their hand or something like that. He would do certain things where, where like, you know, cause he, he's been a winner all his life, you know, especially in high school. So he has that mentality comes from good basketball pedigree. Sometimes those are like overused cliches, but yeah, I I've felt after this year, especially that no matter what RJ Barrett will be, he'll be an impactful player in the league. It's just about what role and, 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 you know, to what extent, um, 
but yeah, I, I was, you know, definitely interested to kind of see your, your thoughts on for sure. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about comparing that, that skill to a dunk or something, or as you watch it, you don't really understand it. Right. Cause it's not the average athleticism. It's not yeah. the kind of athleticism that we're used to. The comparison that I would always make, which is look, I am the guy least fond of any kind of comparison, right? Cause it's usually just garbage and, and distracting, you know, and, and it's too easy to pick apart and it's not really the point of using them, blah, blah, blah. But the thing that I kept coming back to, which speaks to how honestly rare I think it is, was it's like James Harden in a way where his athleticism is uncommon, right? It's not, he doesn't look like the normal Dwayne Wade style athlete. Right. Right. The explosive, powerful, quick change of direction guy. Somehow James Harden does it. And aesthetically speaking, it doesn't look like other NBA stars. I think um, Barrett has some of that, right? Where he has some skills that just, they don't look normal. Perhaps that's to his advantage. Perhaps that's what's causing defenders to allow him to get to this. It doesn't look right or whatever. Who knows why or how it happens, but it is, it's something special, right? So a lot of other improvement around it, like you were saying, could lead to, you know, just a lot of value because the, the staples that he does have are potentially valuable, you know, given shooting and stuff, spacing like that. Yeah. Well, uh, Sean, I, I thank you for indulging me on uh, RJ Parrick. <laughs> of course, man. I, I, I don't know if that's what you thought you'd probably get into. <laughs> um, but that's probably where we're going to wrap up. You know, I really thank you for your time tonight. Very much appreciate it. If um, you could tell the people listening where they can find you on Twitter, if there's something that you're working on now and you want to promote, please do so. Okay. Well, um, on Twitter, I'm at Ode to Odin. And uh, the Stepian is kind of a website that I started a while ago. And uh, hopefully we're going to try to revive here uh, for this draft season and, and going forward. So thestepian.com, go find links to my podcast there and uh and some of my buddies work there um and uh yeah the podcast the the stepping nba draft podcast listen to that absolutely we'll do so uh thanks again sean and to everybody listening we hope you guys are staying safe talk to you soon